This is episode 20 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dan Weinstein, and we are going to discuss how to present a case history on social media, on Facebook, on SIG13, and I just want to make the disclaimer really quick that we need to be very mindful of HIPAA. So although we do want you to provide a little more information in your descriptions, in your posts, please do not provide any identifying information. So Dan does talk in this episode about, you know, how to describe a case history to a physician or to your supervisor. And in those cases, yes, you can include age, gender, identifying information. But I do just want to say when you are posting a question on social media to please, please keep our, our patient's privacy in mind and do not provide any patient identifying information. And if you're familiar with Dan, he did episode six uh, back when we first started the podcast. It was a great, great episode on palliative care and tube feedings and, and PO status. So if you work with any of the frail elderly population, this is a great episode for you to go back and listen to. And the show notes that he provided in that episode too are incredible. Got a lot of great feedback about those. So anyways, Dan is back for another episode today. And I've gotten a few emails about how to check, how to find the show notes. So there's two ways now. You can either text SYP and the episode number to the number 44222. And so that's what it will be. That's what it's set up for all of these episodes. And additionally, you can find each episode. Go to bit.ly forward slash SYP podcast and then the episode number. So if you want to find that episode, it's bit.ly forward slash SYP podcast 006. Or today's episode is bit.ly forward slash SYP podcast 020. Or you can just go to swallowyourpridepodcast.com and look at all the past episodes. But you go to that episode and there'll be a big button that says download the show notes. You click on that and they pop up. Okay. And also, since you know it is the end of the year, it is total crunch time for getting your CEUs. Uh, if you go to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP, they've created a really cool webpage there exclusively for Swallow Your Pride listeners. And it gives you a demonstration of all of those cool perks that come with that $95 premium plan when you use that link. Uh, so a lot of people have asked me questions about what's in the home exercise builder, what are included in the handouts. What courses can I even take? So go to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP. You'll be able to see a lot of the cool options they have in there. And they do give me a small commission for sending you guys that way. That helps to keep this podcast free. So just putting that disclaimer in there. And then additionally, thank you to everyone who has contributed to our Patreon account. I, I would love if you do find this podcast helpful, if it has added value to you, if you can contribute some of that value back to us, I'd love to be able to support this awesome dream team that I have working on the podcast now. Uh, so if, if you're able to support this podcast in any way, it's essentially just like public radio. You, you give what you can. So 25 cents an episode, $4 an episode, whatever you think that this provides to you. So go to www.patreon.com forward slash SYP. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, Dan. Hey, Teresa. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Welcome back. You're the first repeat offender that we've had on this podcast. So congratulations on earning that badge of honor. Thank you. I know that your first episode was hugely popular. You talked a lot about uh, dysphagia and the kind of frail elderly population and dementia. And it was a huge eye-opener for a lot of people in our field because we've been doing things, I don't want to say the wrong way, but not the best way for a lot of years. So thank you for presenting that material before. Well, I'm glad to be back. And I know that you and I are always talking about what else 
you know, we could present and talk about. And I know we wanted to, to get this in before the end of the year. So I'm excited to be back. Yes. Yeah. So this is my this is my Christmas gift to all of you. This is Dan's Hanukkah gift to all of you. And if you celebrate something else, <laughs> it's a gift to you as well. But this is our special holiday edition gift to all of you. So um, if if you're not on Facebook, we have a, I have a group called the Med SLP Newbies. And it's just a lot of young, young clinicians or CFs. There's lots of grad students in there too, but there's also uh, SLPs that have come from the schools or private practice trying to get into the medical side of things. And a lot of times, you know, there's lots of great people in the group that are always willing to help, but sometimes the questions aren't asked in the best way. And it's difficult to give an answer when you can't even figure out what they're looking for to begin with. And then sometimes... The whole conversation just goes downhill from there because we assume they meant something. They assumed we knew something and it can get ugly. So Dan said, I want to talk about. I want to talk about presenting a patient, whether that be in a Facebook group or to your supervisor or to another medical professional. I think that that's important because if you don't, if you don't take all of the things into account that I'm going to talk about. I wonder how you can appropriately manage patients. So I think it's good to just talk about this, do some level setting, um, and see how it goes on the Facebook forums after this podcast. All right. Well, let, let's back up a second, Dan. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Because you're in a new role now since last time we've spoke. So if people don't know you, tell them a little bit about who you are. Sure. So I'm a speech pathologist. I am currently the chief of audiology and speech pathology at the VA Medical Center in Philadelphia. I was previously at UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco. I've been here since October, loving my job. Um, I love being able to discuss the different experiences that I've had um, in different settings, from the VA to academic medical centers to smaller community hospitals. And I've really kind of developed sort of my own approach to how I manage patients with dysphagia. I've become a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and so I hope that I can take what I've learned and, and developed and share it with you guys listening on the podcast. All right. Awesome. Okay. So where should we start? So I am, I'm a new CF. I've been at my new job for a month, and I want to pose a question to my supervisor. Where at this point should I go? Well, I think I want to go back to probably a show that a lot of the newbies don't remember. It's ER. It's my favorite show of all time. <laughs> and if you remember, probably in one of the first episodes, young medical student, Dr. John, or John Carter, um, he is rattling off a patient's history, you know, while walking briskly down the hallway with his resident, Dr. Benton. And if you've ever seen a scene from ER or Grey's Anatomy, you, you probably see that a lot. You know, they give a patient's history. And it's that that I really want to talk about today and, and why that history is so import, important when you are evaluating a patient with dysphagia. So the reason why I want to talk about that is so many of the posts are worded sort of like this. I have a patient who aspirates and the MDS recommended honey thick liquids. What should I do? I'd love to help these newbies, but that's not enough information. So that's what I want to talk about. Awesome. I love it. So, you know, when, when you are presenting a patient, you typically give the patient chief complaint. What is the reason for the evaluation? Whether it be a swallow evaluation, a speech evaluation, a language evaluation, what's the chief complaint? And not just the patient has difficulty swallowing. But what exactly is the difficulty? How long has it been going on? When did it start? Is it a constant problem? Is it intermittent? Is it progressive? Uh, or is it getting better? What is the patient doing on their own to improve it? What tests have already been done? Which specialists have they already seen? And what's the patient's medical history? Those things are so crucial to know when, when you want to figure out what to do with a patient. Absolutely. So one of the things that is helpful is something like a questionnaire, either one that you've made up on your own or maybe, maybe the EAT-10 questionnaire, which kind of gives you an idea in terms of honing in on the patient's symptoms. Dan, how, how much does the EAT-10 cost? I'm a real broke grad student. That's free. Google yes. it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'll tell you, I can almost... 
diagnose or at least have a really good idea of what I'm going to do with a patient or what the patient's diagnosis is, even before I see them, just based on chart review. If you do a good chart review and this information is, is available to you, you know, you can have a pretty good idea of, of where things are going to go during your clinical exam. Um, or even just within the first 30 seconds of walking into a patient's room, I have a plan for that patient. Awesome. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what exactly you look for in the chart? Sure. So like I said, you know, you want to look for a description of the problem, uh, like I mentioned, and look at the tests that have already been done. So in terms of testing, you know, have they had clinical swallow evaluation, modified barium swallow, fees? or even any of the uh, GI tests, have they had an esophagram or upper GI study, endoscopy? Have they been scoped by a physician in the past? You know, I want to look at what is currently available to me before I even go and talk to the patient. I might even reach out to the SLP or other specialists who have seen the patient in the past um, and have a discussion with them beforehand. And my approach to doing a clinical swallow exam, I consider it to be like, any kind of doctor's clinical exam, meaning the doctor does an assessment of the patient, looking at the history, looks at symptoms, looks at the complaint, and then comes up with a game plan. So sometimes the clinical exam might be sufficient. So maybe a younger person goes to the doctor with a cough. The doctor might take clinical signs like fever. They might use a stethoscope to listen to the patient's chest. They might say, you know, Given your age and, you know, the exposures you've had, you, you probably have maybe a bacterial infection. We're going to give you some antibiotics. If it doesn't go away, then we'll consider an x-ray. So sure, there are those times where, based on the information available to you, you don't always have to go to an x-ray. And I think that's similar to swallowing. You know, depending on the situation, you don't always have to do an instrumental. Instrumentals are important. and you should do them, but I'm going to say you don't always have to. And I think that if you look at certain analogies where you are seeing a doctor in the doctor's office, it, it makes sense, I think. Yeah. <laughs> let me okay. let me back you let me back you up a little sure. bit here because I know, you know, sometimes what's always a hot topic is a screening versus an actual evaluation. So what you just mentioned, you know, you do the chart review, you have a good idea of what's going to happen with this patient, you go in and talk with them for 10 minutes. Where do you go from there? Is that just considered your screen or are you going on to an eval from there? You know, I've talked about screens in the past and I feel like if I am going into the patient's room and doing something with the patient, I'm billing for my time and that is considered an evaluation. I might screen the chart ahead of time and say, you know what, based on the patient's symptoms, it seems really much more esophageal. I'm not going to see that patient. That's, that's what I say in terms of a screen. But if I'm going into the patient and talking to them and doing any kind of assessment, that's an exam. And it's okay if your exam is short. I think that as speech pathologists, we think um, more is always better. I don't think that's necessarily true. Sometimes less is more. Sometimes I'll have an idea, like I said, of what the patient's issue is going to be before I even go into the room. So my clinical exam is going to be very short because I'm probably going to do an MBS or a fees. I've made that decision even before I've walked into the room or within, you know, a minute of being in there. So my clinical exam does not need to be super long. And that's okay. You can bill for that. You've done an assessment. You've come up with a recommendation and uh, an assessment. And then you go forward with your instrumental examination. Yeah, I think I think that's such a good point. I think that's a fantastic point that sometimes less can be more. You know, I mean, you're yeah. not you're not you're not administering an entire you know Boston diagnostic exam or something. You don't need an, an entire hour to you know present a test. So, yeah, right. And so, let's say you get a vague consult for the patient has difficulty swallowing. That's all that's really available to you. So you go in the room, you ask the patient a little bit more. You want to say not what is your problem, but are you having difficulty with solid food or liquid, you know, or both? You assess their voice, you assess their cough, and then you give trials, right? And I think that the Yale Swallow Protocol or the the three-ounce swallow challenge is a good way to say, okay, is it likely a liquid problem or is it a solid problem? So, for instance, 
if a patient's coughing with liquid, then that might cue you in on an airway protection issue, meaning aspiration. But if the issue is more with potentially multiple swallows, and I'm not saying two or three, but the patient is visibly struggling to swallow um, liquid applesauce cracker, then you'd think, oh, wow, this might be a uh, bolus efficiency issue or a residue issue, if that makes sense. Right? So, so based on you know, just a few questions, a uh, you know, sip or two of water, and a couple trials of puree or solid, you have an idea of whether this is going to be an airway protection issue, a bolus efficiency issue, or both, or sometimes neither. Maybe it's um, more of an esophageal issue. And, and it, let's say the patient says that it, you know, I'm having problems with solid food. You ask them, where does it stick? And we know that the esophagus is a very poor sensate organ. A lot of times there will be referred sensation up, you know, towards the neck. I would say that if most of the time when a patient does complain of solid food dysphagia, it tends to be esophageal uh, in origin. Unless, of course, it is very much like the patient is having visible difficulty just swallowing it down. So, you know, when I talk about these symptoms, and the patient's history and the chief complaint, because that's how I decide what the next step is going to be. You know, which test am I going to do and why? And I realize that sometimes people don't always have, you know, feeds and MBS available to them, but let's say you do. Why would you choose one test versus another? And when would you do the test? You know, does it need to be right now? Or, you know, can it be deferred? And I think that also depends on the setting that you're in. Yeah, absolutely. So let's say I think that the issue is more of a solid food dysphagia. So I think that we have a couple options here. If, and this is kind of my own uh, clinical decision-making tree. If a patient's chief complaint is solid food dysphagia, right, let's say they're an inpatient. I'd want to know, why are we being consulted now? Does it have anything to do with their hospitalization? Will our intervention now make any difference in their hospital stay? If the answer is to, if the answer to that question is no, I would defer it, right? Someone having difficulty with solid food is probably having a chronic esophageal problem. It's not something that needs to be managed right away. I might even say, you know what, follow up with GI or, you know, follow up with your primary care doctor, have an esophagram, you know, something that's, that's least invasive. If I don't think that it's a problem with the oral or pharyngeal phase of swallowing, why do I want to deal with it? Why not put that patient in the best, you know, hands possible to take care of what I think the problem is? But let's say that that patient has been admitted with aspiration pneumonia or a choking episode. Well, then I would probably want to do a modified barium swallow while they're in the hospital and it's related to their hospitalization. Why would I want to do a modified barium swallow? Well, that could potentially be a trichopharyngeal dysfunction issue where um, solid food is, is having difficulty passing through the upper portion of the esophagus. It could be a residue issue related to osteophytes and things are just getting stuck in the pharynx. Or maybe it is, maybe we just don't know, and I want to be able to look at the pharynx and the esophagus. Modified barium swallow would be ideal for that. Um, let's say it's, I assume it to be an airway protection issue. Well, if I think that it's mostly an airway protection issue, there's not going to be a problem with residue, well, then I would want to go to a fees, assess the larynx and assess um, different consistencies. In that case, I think modified barium swallow or fees would do, but maybe a fees would be the better choice if you had a concern about a laryngeal pathology, for instance. Why, why do you say the, the residue piece, Dan? Because I feel like fees is a better way to look at residue. Do you disagree with that? Well, I think that you can certainly see residue better on fees because you're looking on top of it and sometimes looking laterally on, on fluoroscopy makes it difficult to see the quantity of residue. And I believe there are studies that show that residue is, is better seen in terms of the quantity in fees. However, the reason behind that residue is often difficult to infer on a fees. So if it is a residue issue, I prefer fluoroscopy. So if you are seeing residue in a pure form sinuses on fees, you don't exactly know why. Maybe it's 
a problem with opening of the upper esophageal sphincter, or perhaps there's an osteophyte, or there's a cricopharyngeal bar or a stricture lower down. You can't always differentiate that on keys. So I prefer to see the physiology better on fluoroscopy. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Can, can I ask you, because you're one of those super small few that, that has open access to both, are there many patients or any patients that you would do both on? Yeah. I mean, I have done a modified barium swell in the past. This, I think this is a great example where, where a patient came in with aspiration pneumonia. I did a modified barium swallow and it looked to me as if the bolus was being directed one way. And I thought, oh, this patient doesn't have any neurohistory. Why would they have this unilateral issue? Um, so in ter- if you are seeing residue on one side versus another, then perhaps these might be the better choice because you can have them do a pharyngeal squeeze and actually look at the movement of the pharyngeal constrictors and the larynx um, on one side versus another, perhaps a little bit better on these. So we did a feed, and what I found was that the patient actually had a um, uh, what's called a lipoma or kind of soft tissue mass that was protruding from the pharynx, uh, from the pharyngeal wall. And that was diverting the bolus into the airway and on one side of the pharynx. Had I not done the feeds, I would have never known that. And that's why, that's why looking at, and that's why doing an instrumental is so important when approaching how you're going to treat this patient. I knew at that time that From my standpoint, yes, I could have the patient do a head turn and and perhaps that would help uh, direct the bolus uh, away from the airway. But ultimately, by doing the fees, I discovered that this patient had this uh, lipoma. He could be referred to ENT and that lipoma could be removed. You wouldn't want to get into doing exercises. Yeah, I was just going to say, it doesn't matter how many CTARs you do at this point, you're not making that lipoma go away with your magic wand. Exactly. And well, if you are looking for some sort of magic wand, fees could technically be considered a magic wand because I love everything you can find when you're doing a fees. Uh, If you're looking for a true high-definition fees imaging system, check out EndoHD. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. It's a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by SLPs for conducting fees studies. Fully automated system with zero downtime, intuitive software with one-touch recording, immediate fee study is available for review. Contact www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. So thank you, EndoHD, for being our December sponsor. And so what I wanted to talk about also today is that, you know, when doing treatment, you, you absolutely need an MBS or fees because if you're seeing a patient five times a week for months and you've not done any type of instrumental, you're doing it wrong. You're, right. you're treating <laughs> you're patients incorrectly. <laughs> you're doing it wrong, right? <laughs> the, the example that I just gave, right? What if I had, had, had that approach with the patient? Well, we'll, we'll work on exercises. Um, and I had not, not ever done that to you. Well, you know, that would have been a disservice to the patient and it would have been a waste of insurance money and it would have been a waste of the patient's time and my time. So instrumentals, absolutely. Will I do both? Yes. And, you know, and, and that's okay. If you look at a stroke patient who comes into the hospital, the first thing they do is a head CT. If the head CT is negative, they most likely go to an MRI because that's more sensitive to ischemic strokes, whereas a head CT is a little bit more readily available, but doesn't see ischemia as well as MRI, right? So it's okay to do more than one test. And if anyone is telling you or giving you pressure that you shouldn't do any tests at all, feel free to use any of the analogies (laughs) that I just provided. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, Dan. That that was great. It's it's always great to hear from people that, you know, have, don't have access issues. You know, that's most of the battles that we're fighting every day is just getting access to stuff. So it's great to hear your, I guess, um, unobstructed view of of what you can do. Mm -hmm. So cool. 
Yeah. All right. So let's get back on, on track with our case history here. So now we've done our instrumental. So now you have that information. Right. But I wanted to say for those that don't do their own instrumentals, maybe you're in a facility where you, where you um, refer out for either fees or MBS. I think it's really important that you communicate with the SLP who's going to do the exam about your concerns for that patient. For instance, you know, I'm really concerned that the patient might have an esophageal problem, so it would be helpful if you could get imaging of the esophagus while you're doing the, the MBS. Or, you know, same example, you know, I, and you only have fees available. Um, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned about the esophagus. I know that you can only look at the pharynx, but maybe you could give milk because sometimes milk is a little bit easier to see when it comes back up if the patient is, is refluxing up into the pharynx. Or maybe you could get a really good look at the anatomy and, and you know, do the reflux finding score, which looks at the some certain components of the pharynx, which, you know, it's and I'm sure you'll include this in the show notes. And if, if there's a score of over a certain number, it's highly suggestive of laryngopharyngeal reflux. So there are things that you, you know, might suspect that you've got to make sure that you're doing the right test for the complaint or for the, the possible dysphagia. Yeah. And, and I'll just take your point even further, too, because I know, you know, I had some horrific issues back in my, um, you know, when I was a full time SLP in the sniffs with getting, you know, good reports for, for my bottom modified barium swallows. And I finally did find an SLP that did great reports and we had great open communication, you know, and I would just say to her, Hey, you know, this patient's been doing a chin tuck for years, you know, can we just make sure that that's even necessary? Or, you know, this patient has a real issue with alertness and sometimes they're completely out of it. You know, maybe strategies aren't going to be the best way to go. So I think that open communication is is so vital because sometimes you get the report back and they're like, oh, they didn't even try any strategies. And then, you know, you hear from the acute care SLP and it's like, oh, well, we didn't, you know, their level of alertness was a little down today. We weren't sure if that would be the best way to go, you know, so just don't blame it on he said, she said, just have the conversation. <laughs> so. Right, right. So once, once you have the information from uh, either fees or MBS, you know, you want to take into account their medical history. Does what you're seeing on fees or MBS add up with, with their past, right? So if, if the patient is aspirating, we all know that a little bit of aspiration once in a while is probably normal, but if, if the patient is consistently aspirating and you know there are physiologic uh, components of the swallow that are impaired, that's not enough. We need to ask ourselves why. Why not only why is the patient aspirating from a swallow physiology standpoint, but why medically? What in their medical history would cause that to happen? And I talk about this because we are sometimes the first line of defense or the first time that, that uh, you know, we can be the ones to uncover a problem based on our swallowing assessment. You know, people don't just aspirate. People don't just have dysphagia. You know, oftentimes you might get a referral from primary care, for example, oh, the patients have some, have some trouble swallowing, and, and you do a, a thorough medical history, and there's not much in there, and you do you do this modified pattern swallower fees, and something just doesn't add up. So in this case, you have to go backwards, right, to find the medical diagnosis, and this is something that um, Dr. Joe Duffy at Mayo Clinic talks about. Um, when he's assessing speech and language symptoms in order to help the physicians at Mayo Clinic differentiate between a neurodiagnosis. Yeah, and I, I can give you examples where, you know, a patient was referred to me. And, okay, perfect example, 18-year-old. You know, why is an 18-year-old being referred for a modified barium swallow? Well, he, he comes with his mother and um, he, he sounds hypernasal. Okay, any medical history? No. So already I'm suspicious. So we move forward with the modified barium swallow. And he has significant residue as a result of the swallowing physiology that I see uh, impaired during, during the study. So it would be inappropriate of me to say, oh, okay, here are some strategies to get rid of your residue. Goodbye. Right? In this case, you, you have to recognize that this doesn't add up. So I ended up referring this patient to a neurologist, and he was uh, eventually diagnosed with myotonic muscular dystrophy. And you have to wonder if, if that 
patient had never seen, you know, a speech pathologist and how to modify barium swallow. And that speech pathologist didn't recommend a neuro evaluation. How long would it have taken until he got the proper diagnosis? Right. You could have just been having him do 20 effortful swallows a day and told him it'll get better. Exactly. So when I talk about presenting a patient uh, and their history and their swallowing history, the medical history is also important because that's going to help determine what treatment you do, if any. Um, so we know that there's limited treatment with par- uh, with ALS patients versus Parkinson's. You know, they're... Bell's palsy. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. Right. Those those medical diagnoses come with their own prog- uh, prognoses. Dan, how are you going to treat someone with Bell's palsy? I'm not. You're not? <laughs> I'm not. No. Let let the doctor take care of that and it will it will eventually recover. Interesting. All right. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. How would you? Same the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that I and I've said this before, we want to be the helpful profession. We want to be the fix it people, right? But sometimes we can't, right? And especially That's why it's especially important to know the reason why medically, or if it's a structural problem. You know, I think that we need to stop making up treatment just because we think we have to. We've we've gotten a patient, right? We've done an evaluation. There's no behavioral treatment for a structural problem like a Zenker's diverticulum or osteophytes or a mass. (laughs) So you have to not only identify the problem, but know what to do when you see that problem. And know what to do based on certain diagnoses. Right. So Zankers, you're not going to do exercises either? No. No, I'm not going to do exercises for Zankers. There's no, nothing that I can do to get rid of a structural problem. And I'd say that if you do a study and you think that it might be something neurological or you think that you see a mass there, if you, suspecting, if you suspect something like this, don't just jump to treatment right? When things don't add up, you've got to refer and you have to know who to refer to. And if you're someone who sees a lot of of patients with dysphagia, you need to know specifically which doctors you should refer to for which diagnoses. You know, if you suspect that something might be neuromuscular, such as as ALS, get to know who um, in the community, if you're near an academic medical center, is there an ALS specialist that you can refer them to? If you think based on the swallow and the patient's voice and maybe you see some tremors or or a gait that looks kind of um, shuffled, well, you know, you'd probably want to refer that patient to a Parkinson's specialist. And it's okay to contact that specialist and let them know that you've referred that patient to them if the patient says that that's okay, so that you two can coordinate and come up with a good plan. And then when the patient receives the medical diagnosis, then you can work on treatment. So then you can see a patient several times a week for a month for something like LSBT that is, you know, researched and proven. Then you can do something like EMST or McNeil dysphagia therapy, but not until the swallow diagnosis and the medical diagnosis add up, then you can choose an appropriate treatment. I think, I think that's such a, such a great point, Dan. And, you know, even as I was a you know, working in the SNF for so many years and you just write, you know, they would just come back and write ENT console. But kind of the more that I got, you know, assimilated in the community, I learned who the best, you know, ENT doctors were and or who the best GIs were. And I mean, even in my area, one of the best ENTs is about 40 minutes away, but I have no problem telling family members that. And then they'll call me and thank me for giving them this incredible referral. This is not the first place they would have ever thought to go to but they were so impressed with that doctor. So, you know, even if you just think, well, I'm only in the hospital or I'm only in skilled nursing, I just make these referrals, like get to know the big players in your area. You know, you want to help your patients. So, you know, get to know who the good doctors are and, and get a good relationship going with them. You know, they're they're not going to bite if you call and say, I've referred this patient because a lot of times they're going to seek you out and try to call you for some continuity and care too. So, Exactly. And I always tell patients, you know, ENTs are not created equal. Some are ENTs, some are ENTs, and some are ENTs. And oftentimes you want to send a patient to an ENT. And what I mean by that is someone who's done, you know, a fellowship in uh, laryngology, voice and swallowing disorders, 
There's also a fellowship in head and neck surgical oncology. And often those are the patients that I'll refer a Zenger's patient to because they'll do esophagoscopies and um, diverticulectomies and things like that. So get to know the different ENTs in your area, even GIs. There are some GIs who just scope and that's it. There are other GI centers where they'll do um, manometry and look at uh, motility. There's some uh, GIs that will do pH probe testing uh, for reflux, and that really is the gold standard for reflux. You know, doing an esophagram and or an EGD is sometimes not enough. If you really suspect that a patient might have, you know, significant reflux, you really want to refer that patient to someone who's going to do more than do, do a scope that oftentimes will come up negative despite the patient's symptoms that suggest otherwise. Yep. Yep. That's such a good point. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you went there, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, after you've done all this, right? You've done a good clinical evaluation. You've done an instrumental. Then you want to make sure that you've got everything that you need in the note. <laughs> and then I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of clinicians have a tough time with too. And I, and I imagine this to be true just given some of the, the posts that lack a lot of this information on Facebook, right? So if you've done a good history, you've taken um, the history of the, of the presenting problem, right? Include that in your note. Then you want to include the objective findings of testing, specifically what went on during that visit. And remember, if you didn't write it, it didn't happen. Then you want to include an assessment, which is an, an interpretation of your objective findings. And this should be written in a way that, you know, anyone that you're referring to who might not be a speech pathologist will understand, you know, what is your rationale? for referring the patient uh, to that specialist, for instance. Does the chief complaint add up with your objective findings? And if not, why not? And also it's very important to include a plan. You know, if you're just doing a clinical exam and you say the plan is to refer the patient on for a fees or barium swallow, um, or, you know, we'll proceed with exercises. Here are the goals. Here are the exercises that we're going to work on. If it's Plan to be determined pending, you know, evaluation by the ENT or GI, for example. That's what you need to include. Um, and then also an acknowledgement that the patient has been educated about um, the results and the plan and that they're in agreement with the plan. So it sounds like you essentially just wrote like a mini soap note, Dan. Yeah, and that's how, you know, notes should be structured. And I know that, that you know, we... we tend to get away from that sometimes because we, we, go, we go really hard on soap notes in school and they tend to be really lengthy and then we move away from it. But the components of a soap note need to be there, especially the assessment and plan, so that anyone looking at your note, whether it be another speech pathologist or um, a specialist, can look at it and know what happened during that session, what you think is going on, and what the plan is. And then we have also gotten away, I think, from writing good goals. So if you're the person who is seeing a patient five times a week for three months in a sniff, uh, for example, right, how do you know when to stop therapy? How is your goal written? The, the goals that we write as speech pathologists, and ASHA has this uh, outlined very well on their site, have, have to be, the goals have to include a frequency, you know, how many times a week, how many weeks are you going to do it for? And what the patient needs to do during each session in order to meet that goal. The goal cannot be written so broadly as, you know, someone picking up that patient has no idea what you're working, what you're working on in each session and how do you know when to finish up with that patient? Because that's a question that I see posed a lot. How do you know when to discharge a patient? You know when to discharge a patient when the patient has met the goal. Right. And the goals are usually will consume least restrictive diet. And what does that mean, right? What are we doing? What is the treatment? What is the skilled intervention that we are doing in each session? And, and I think that here is where I, we need to talk about um, the setting, right? I think that there's a difference between inpatient versus like an acute rehab or subacute rehab or outpatient. In acute rehab, we often get consults for you know a patient first swallow evaluation. Well, really, their their acute issue might be what's actually getting in the way of them uh, being able to swallow safely, right? Maybe they're lethargic and they've asked for an eval. So I realize that it becomes very much like a 
serial bedside clinical assessment over time. So, so that might be a little bit different than someone who is stable medically in an acute or subacute setting where you don't go up and give them trials every day because they're, they're going to present the same as every single day, right? So if you are sitting in there watching a patient eat or cueing them for the same strategies that you've cued them on the week prior, well, they're not going to get any better, right? So they're not stimulable to do things independently. At what point then would you stop? And at what point is that, do you stop and say to yourself, well, is this a, a skilled service? It's okay to discharge a patient who needs cueing. That doesn't mean you need to be the one to do the cueing, but you might not be able to fix someone who's cognitively impaired due to a progressive neurological disorder. You know, they might require cueing for the rest of their lives. They might even require increased cueing. It's okay to let go and walk away after you've done your assessment of their swallowing and of their ability to learn uh, new things. And if they can't, if they can't learn, you've got to let them go. Yeah, and I guess just to elaborate, you know, a little bit more on going back to to the soap notes and the goals. I know kind of one of the most common questions that you know someone will pose a, a a case history, and one of the most common questions that people will respond with is, "Well, what does the patient want?" So I don't want us to ever forget that patient piece too. You know, someone will write this whole long elaborate history and we can't decide between nectar thick or honey thick, but they're on hospice, but the family wants them to be on thin, but they want to be on honey. And it's this whole like juggling circus act. And then people will ask, well, what does the patient want? Well, I don't know. I didn't have this conversation with the patient. So, I mean, that is such a crucial, critical piece in our in our management, you know, if the patient says to hell with all of this, I just want to drink thin liquids, then that's what you're going to, that's what they're going to do. You know, why are you trying to assess honey, nectar, figure out what the best is going to be when that, they're not even going to remotely follow through with that. And that's why I wanted to bring up this topic because I think so many posts, for instance, on, on the uh, newbie group are a little premature because some of these things aren't even known. The history isn't known. The, the conversation with the patient hadn't happened yet. I'd love to see a post that had all of these things, all of these components in it, and then say, okay, now what do I do? You know, rather than I have a patient who aspirates, tell me what to do. There has to be some due diligence on the treating clinician, um, you know, to find this information out. And I'm hoping that as a result of, you know, listening to this podcast, the, the questions will get a little bit more, more detailed, a little bit more focused. And I, I think it's so funny because oftentimes the responses are much, much longer than the initial question posts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, there are, there are people who are responding on and on and on and on. Um, and the initial question is, you know, a sentence or two. And, and it's so important to, to make sure that you have all of this information done before, before you say, okay, now what do I do? Because no one can help you if, if you don't have this info. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's like what made me bring it up was there was so much missing information. I think so many people chimed in, well, I would do this and then I would do this and then I would do this. And then the patient at the bottom is like, well, they're hospice, they're on comfort care. They don't want an altered diet anyways. And it's like, well, what the hell did we all just spend all of our time writing <laughs> all this stuff out for when you could have right. just put that in, in the initial, in the initial post and saved us all a lot of time and energy. <laughs> And I will say it's not easy. You know, it's not always black and white. And I think that there are really good discussions and different approaches of, of things and, and how to handle them. But it, it's really hard to, to to give an opinion about, you know, how to approach a situation if, if you don't have all of the information. And, you know, I, I think there are, there are people who get very defensive when questions are posed in such a direct manner. But if you go back to, to Carter and Benton on ER, if you've ever seen that show, Carter got a lot more direct questions. So he got a lot more than that. So I, I think that, that people just need to like let their guard down a little bit and just know that people need this information in order to help you and in order to help your patient, if that totally. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, I just adore all of you. I love all of you that help, help out so much. And everyone comes from such a good place. You know, everyone has such a good heart and everyone wants to help out. And it's just frustrating when we try to help, but we're missing pieces of information. And then 
people get crappy in response, you know, and it's kind of calm down a little bit, give us the information and, and we can work through this together as a team. You know, everyone is is so supportive and I'm so grateful that we have this community, but it's a little game of give and take. So, right. So give us your, your perfect post, Dan, what, what, give us a, a little summary of what exactly would be in your perfect post when you're trying to ask me what you should do with this patient. Okay. A really good example of, of a post would be something like, oh, I have this 85-year-old woman who was recently admitted to the hospital with a UTI. As a result of the UTI, she was really lethargic and she was seen by the speech pathologist and they did a modified barium swallow and she was aspirating everything and they ended up pegging her and she is now in my skilled nursing facility and I'm evaluating her. She's wide awake. Her family reports she's at baseline. She's never had aspiration pneumonia in the past. Um, she's got really good oral care. You know, her weight had been stable up until her hospitalization. She's able to self-feed. You know, do you think it's reasonable that that I return or recommend a regular diet within liquids, given the fact that, you know, I've given her the three-ounce swallow screen and she's able to take three ounces, no problem. You know, I confirmed with the speech pathologist who did did the study that, yeah, she was really out of it when I did it. You know, how do you think that I should go about this? Do you think that I need to do a fees or MBS, or do you think that I can manage this clinically? Right. And then I think that you'd get some good discussion. You'd get different opinions about how to approach this patient, but, but you've provided a good history, a good background. You're discussing the patient's current status versus their status during inpatient. And then, you know, responders can, can really take the those components into consideration when they're when they're giving you uh, answers. I, I don't think that there's one right answer for that question, but at least people have an educated or can give you an educated answer. Absolutely. When I think, I mean, we all spend so much time on these boards, like helping each other out. And if you could just give us a little bit of our time back by providing this information, it would be so appreciated because sometimes it's like the first 80 posts or, or the first 80 comments are just trying to decipher what the heck is going on with the patient. So if we can get this information ahead of time, then we can just get right into the discussion about what I would do or what you would do, mm -hmm. you know, so right. it would just really save everyone, I think, a lot of time, a lot of grief, a lot of arguing if, if we just have a good solid case history. Remember how to do your soap notes from grad school. Don't forget what the patient wants. Tell us all that stuff and then we can go from there. Right. Imagine, you know, I think that currently you see a lot of posts that say, oh, I have this patient who got pegged while they were in the hospital. Um, she's not showing overt signs of aspiration. What should I do? You know, then the questions start. It's like, well, what's the patient's baseline? Why was the patient in the hospital in the first place? What's their weight? What's their history of aspiration pneumonia? You know, and it's like, then you get all that information and then you start talking about it. So it would just save a whole bunch of time if you included all of that in your, his in your post, all that history in your post. That'd be great. Right. Absolutely. One thing that I did want to mention is just be, be cautious about the term aspiration pneumonia. Oftentimes that diagnosis is, is given by physicians based on, oh, the patient has dementia and we see something in the right lower lobe. It, you know, I've even seen it where it's not the right lower lobe and they're calling it aspiration pneumonia. So just because the patient might have a history of aspiration pneumonia, if they don't have a history of aspiration or dysphagia, then, you know, be cautious about that. That can be misleading. And then you, you get taken down this path of doing every single test in a book in the book for a patient who maybe just had a bacterial or viral pneumonia. Or doing three months worth of exercises because you didn't do an instrumental first and there's really no dysphagia going on at all. Good point. <laughs> all right. Well, I'd love, that was actually a topic I wanted you to come back and present on at some point too, Dan, because I know you, um, you have some good Dr. Coyle references and some other things about really what what constitutes aspiration pneumonia? Do you, is there, I know I'm putting you on the spot right now, but is there a few specific papers you can think of in mind or? Well, I think that you should go to the source himself. I think that Dr. Coyle does put on uh, presentations. I don't know where the next one is, but I, I think I saw it in my email. I would definitely look at that and, and look up, 
even just doing your own research on the criteria for diagnosing aspiration pneumonia and how that's kind of moving away from localization of um, an opacity on, on x-ray and really how it needs to include actual aspiration and keeping in mind that aspiration can occur from up above and down below. And I see a lot of people treating a patient who might have had aspiration pneumonia from an emesis event when in fact they have normal oropharyngeal swallowing. So just kind of reading up on that, whether it be, you know, looking at information from Dr. James Coyle or, you know, doing a Google research or Google Scholar search on diagnosing aspiration pneumonia and that criteria. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Any Anything else you want to cover? Did you get your, your piece in? <laughs> I think I'm good. Until the next podcast. Until the next. Yeah. Oh, this is so good, Dan. I'm so glad we just totally threw this together. <laughs> happy holidays, everyone. Yes. Happy holidays. All right. Thanks again, Dan. Thank you. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening. Coming soon from Speech Science, Talking With Tech. With me, Rachel Madel and Chris Bouguet. What are we going to be talking about? Stop feeling so daunted by technology. Push the button. You're not going to break it. Help people start implementing. Maybe listen to our podcast and go, well, I could try that tomorrow. Conversations with the thought leaders behind all this. I'd also love to hear success stories. If it's working for you, then maybe it could work for somebody else. Go to tech.speechscience.org, subscribe to our podcast, and check that site for exclusive content that you won't see anywhere else. Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Ivan Campos, Lucas Stuber, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question, what is communication? 